0: Welcome to Cardio Radio, a podcast of the Ohio Cardiovascular Health and Diabetes Collaborative, also known as Cardio. This is Dr. Michael Constant from the Case Western Reserve University School of Medicine, and I serve as the Principal Investigator for Cardio, a statewide network of Ohio's seven medical schools. Cardio is funded by the Ohio Department of Medicaid and shares best practices to improve cardiovascular health and diabetes outcomes and to eliminate health disparities in Ohio's Medicaid population. I hope you enjoy today's podcast.
1: I am Elise Karen, Practice Improvement Coaching Lead for Cardio's Team Best Practices and Associate Professor of Medicine at Case Western Reserve University. Today's podcast will address the importance of creating a climate of psychological safety in the healthcare setting. With roots in organizational psychology and studied in multiple sectors, psychological safety has been a key focus of patient safety initiatives, supporting a speak up culture in order to reduce medical errors, promote teamwork, and retain an engaged clinical workforce. With me today is Dr. Michael Holliday. Dr. Holliday is an assistant professor of family and community medicine and the medical director of the Student Health Center at the University of Cincinnati. He completed both his medical degree and residency at the University of Cincinnati. For the last 20 years, Dr. Holliday has delivered primary care to Medicaid patients. His interests include medical education, improving hypertension outcomes and care, and enhancing joy of work in healthcare. He recently served on an advisory board for the Health Policy Institute of Ohio's call to action regarding clinician well-being and patient care and safety. Welcome, Dr. Holliday.
0: Thank you. It's It's a pleasure to be here.
1: In order to set the stage for this podcast, I'd like to share a quote from Dr. Amy Edmondson, Harvard business professor and author of The Fearless Organization. People are both the sensors who pick up signals that change is necessary and the source of creative new ideas to test and implement. After listening to this podcast, you should be able to explain the difference between information about psychological safety in the evidence-based literature and popular misconceptions about the topic, identify the impact of psychological safety's presence and absence within a team that is striving to improve their work, and identify the roles of individual team members and team leaders to create an environment of psychological safety. Psychological safety has been described as early as the 1960s and studied extensively in research on individuals, teams, and organizations in healthcare, as well as settings like the auto industry, aviation, and NASA. What is psychological safety and how is it different from what one might think of when hearing this term?
0: When I first heard psychological safety as a term, I assumed it was maybe an individual experience, like uh, I feel safe, it feels like things are conflict-free, Or maybe it's a personality trait like i'm a nice person and i make other people feel safe at work quote unquote but looking at the research that amy edmondson has reviewed and the work that she's published in that book um the fearless organization it's based upon strong research going back to the 1960s And it's not an individual experience or a trait, but it's actually a quality of the working environment. And it's a quality that encourages team members to speak up with valuable information for the team's work without fear of negative consequences.
1: Based on research, what happens when psychological safety is low?
0: Fortunately, um, that's often. So the research first showed that psychological safety is rare. Um, most workers recall a time that they did not speak up because they had fear about negative consequences. The most cited reasons include just being viewed negatively or fear of damaging interpersonal relationships. When this lack of safety is a part of the culture, the team's performance tends to decline, safety tends to be worse in healthcare settings, and um, people become less engaged in their work.
1: So, Dr. Holliday, could you give us an example of what happens when psychological safety is low?
0: Well, it depends on the work that you're doing. In healthcare and many other fields, work is often unpredictable. It's very interdependent and communication is extremely important. And when people don't feel free to speak up, you start to miss valuable pieces of information that could be helpful. So for example, if a leader is trying to improve a process and maybe people know that this process isn't working, but they're afraid to disparage the leader's idea. They don't want to call the, the leader's baby ugly. And so they'll keep quiet and say, yeah, this sounds great. You know, no, no problem. And then what will actually happen as they try to implement that idea, it just won't work out because it was never going to work out in the first place.
1: So our audience is working in healthcare, a setting that is complex, time pressured, sometimes unpredictable, and requires interdependence. How does psychological safety impact this day to day work?
0: Well, the research shows that it helps in a lot of different ways. For one, teams tend to perform better. A concrete example of this is Project Aristotle. So this is a uh, study on teamwork effectiveness at Google. This was recently published in The New York Times. And it showed that of all the different characteristics of teams working together, psychological safety was far and away the most predictive of effectiveness. And this is in an organization where the teams are already pretty effective. But those teams that had psychological safety, which could be measured, those teams actually did much better. It also tends to encourage learning. So as we know in quality improvement, failure is feedback. You know, we try something, it didn't work, and we realize that our present system might need some improvement. When there's psychological safety present, people can look at um, uh, maybe not the outcome they would like, not as a horrible failure, but just as feedback that, that it's time to improve things and it helps the team move forward in learning. Also in terms of safety, people in teams where there's high psychological safety, they tend to report errors more. If you look at the actual errors occurring, psychological safe teams, they tend to have lower errors, but the number of errors that are reported are higher. And this is a surprising aspect of the research that got Amy Edmondson interested in this. She expected that there would be fewer errors reported in a team that had high psychological safety. In actuality, there was increased reporting because people felt comfortable to, to do so.
1: Dr. Holliday, could you expand on how psychological safety could affect day to day work?
0: Well, everyone knows that things can be fairly chaotic day to day in healthcare. With psychological safety, you can have open communication about two important things one, the day's demands, and two, the limited resources that we have to meet them. If we are all on the same page about those two things, the day is gonna go a lot better. Um, Without that, and, and with poor communication, you have individual team members that may avoid being the messenger of bad news, such as maybe a patient complaint, a safety concern, or poor access. And people also try to solve things on their own with workarounds as opposed to working with a team.
1: And how would it affect quality improvement activities?
0: Well, not only are we doing the day-to-day work, which um, some people have described as the whirlwind, but uh, we are building this plane while it's flying in the air. So trying to, to balance quality improvement with day-to-day work is already challenging. Psychological safety can help this process because it can improve communication in just about every phase of the QI process. And I like to think of the first phase as just the baseline process mapping, like what thing are we trying to improve and what are we doing right now? And I found that without psychological safety, you can't even get people to agree on what the present process is because sometimes we feel bad about how it's going. But if everyone feels comfortable saying the good, the bad, the ugly of what we're presently doing, that could be quite helpful. And then the next step is, uh, as we're trying to improve, we need to be on the same page, at least aligned with what are we trying to do? Why is this important? So this is the aim. And then what about the measure? How do we know that this is actually going to get better? And before we choose a measurement, is it fair? Is it useful? We need to make sure this doesn't make the work harder as we try to collect it. And then finally, the improvement, we want to get people's ideas on what might improve the system. What's likely to help? How can we try it without disrupting the day's work?
1: Dr. Holliday, when I think about quality improvement, I think about the model of improvement and the PDSA cycle. How is psychological safety impacted or affected in each phase of a PDSA cycle?
0: I think it's important in every stage of it, but in the planning part, it's probably most critical. Because we don't even know how to begin unless we start to look at our present process. uh, What are we trying to do? This is the time when we're figuring out what measures we're going to use. And the rest of the cycle is trying an improvement, um, looking at the results, and then thinking about spreading. But that first initial part, communication is very critical to get things started. So in in, uh, one of my offices, we had an issue where people were very upset whenever patients would come in late. They found it disruptive. Clinic got off track. There were some people that wanted a hard and fast rule to send people home if they arrived X number of you know minutes late. But then it became clear that this was more than just an inconvenience to the providers. This was potentially a safety issue. It was potentially a um, customer service issue, patient satisfaction issue. So it was much more complicated. We had a long discussion in that P section, in that plan section, where we really looked at what was our present process? What were all the issues involved so that we could look at it not just as a single faceted problem?
1: Can you provide an example of how psychological safety is impacted in quality improvement work?
0: Uh, sure, I'd be, be glad to. I'm thinking of a time when I was a medical director and we were trying to improve our process of of handling patients arriving late to the clinic. So the reason why psychological safety was important here was because it was a hot-button issue. Experience is quite disruptive. Sometimes it would interrupt the flow of clinic. Providers got upset when uh, they had to um, fit patients in. Support staff were upset when it caused them to you know, miss, miss lunch or, or stay late. And then I, as a medical director, was concerned about Turning patients away when it wasn't appropriate, um, such as if it wasn't their fault or if there was a medical emergency going on. So, so a lot of emotions going on, and um, and everyone had kind of an opinion as to what to do. So, we had to develop some psychological safety and just make it okay for everyone to have um, to raise a point. Because from my standpoint as a medical director, I was the most concerned about safety and. That makes sense. But I wasn't really listening carefully enough to people who were worried about disrupting the flow and how it affected other patients. So I needed to hear that input. Some people wanted to have a hard and fast rule and send patients away, but I had to remind them that you know this is a customer service issue too, and it's also a revenue issue. So we need to think about all of these things. So once we got on the same page, we realized, you know, we didn't want to make people upset when um, there was no need to. Uh, we certainly didn't want bad outcomes, and we also wanted to improve the workflow. So once we all got aligned on what we're trying to accomplish, and we were all in agreement that we might have some challenges when when patients show up for late for different reasons, we were finally able to um, start the process of improving. And the interesting thing is, When we started measuring um, how often patients were actually late, it was not nearly as often as we thought. And in fact, um, the front office was so surprised by the numbers that they demanded that we take another week's worth of data because they thought that it was an off week. So this actually got people engaged and we were able to try uh, different things such as a clear triage process to make sure that the patients were safe and if we need to get a a physician's involvement or a provider's involvement we made it easy for the front staff to collect pertinent information very quickly why were they late what were they there for are they having any other symptoms and that really um, improved the process quite a bit so
1: dr Holliday, it sounds like you have a lot of experience working with quality improvement teams it's often difficult to foster that culture of trust. How do you do that in practice?
0: Well, in the, in the example I just showed, I think what what helped was just coming uh, with a sense of um, uh, trust and respect myself. So assuming the best in people, assuming that everyone I'm working with, they want a good experience for the patient, they want safety, they want things to go well, but they might have um, a perspective about this problem that is slightly different than mine, and um, they have important information. So I want to um, not just you know push back every time that I don't hear what I want to hear, which might be about things such as you know safety or uh, patient satisfaction. I need to be open to hearing other things too. And uh, part of the balance, though, is um listening and making it safe for people to bring up things but also still challenging and letting people know that there's other issues that are going on um, and that this is a complicated complicated problem
1: since psychological safety is something we need how do we get it
0: well thankfully it's easy to get no that's not true (laughs) it's not easy to get it takes work um the thing to remember with this is that we need to realize that there is a tension within every individual. And that tension is, is the risk of having a negative response when I speak up versus the risk of not speaking up. So we're all making this calculation. And the challenge is that we've all been, and this is what Amy Edmondson says in her book, we've all been trained since childhood to manage our image. And this comes pretty quickly. Uh, we don't want to look stupid. And if I don't want to look stupid, I'm not going to ask a question or ask for help. Um, I don't want to be disliked, and so I might not point out things where improvements are needed. I don't want to be disruptive, so I may not offer suggestions for improvement if it counteracts uh, someone else's idea. And, and so we as individuals have to manage that. Leadership has, has attention to manage as well. They both need to provide some psychological safety to make it easier to speak up, but they also have to maintain uh, some challenge, which is to recognize that our work is important. It has consequences, and we do need to challenge people to, to work at their best. So the way leadership does this of creating safety, but also uh, making sure that we, we get the work done that is so important is through behavioral and also some structural changes. And we want to make things um, make things safe to speak up without losing sight that this work is um, challenging and, and is important. So Amy Edmondson talks about um, setting the stage, and um, in the first part of this is is what she she describes as framing our work. So let's all get oriented about the type of work that we're doing. And in healthcare, it can be unpredictable. It's complex and interdependent and it can be error-prone. And so if we realize that that's what we're um, coming up against, we start to realize that not only should it be safe to speak up, but we should, we should be um, obligated to speak up because it's gonna impact our patients. Another way to frame the work is what is the goal? Like, what are we trying to accomplish? And then what are the stakes of, of our work? Patient safety, patient experience, and also burnout if the work is not sustainable. Um, a a good way to set the stage. And this is something that I, uh, tried a long time ago and and was pretty successful. Um, this was just going first. So, um, being the first person to speak up about things that are maybe hard to talk about. I don't know where I, um, stole this from, but I, I had something called marvelous mistakes in, in one of our uh, office meetings that I would hold. And I would just share a, um, a time when things didn't work out the way I wanted it to work out for a patient. And often um, it was a little bit embarrassing uh, for myself, um, but to just admit that you know something wasn't perfect and also highlighting how there was both system uh, factors and, and my own individual factors that contributed to it, that set the stage for people to um, uh, be more inclined to, to share. The next step is inviting participation. A good way to do this is by asking good questions. If we can ask a question that's specific that encourages uh, participation we're going to get more information so for example there was a leader in a pediatric hospital who was charged with improving safety in that organization and she started to ask a different question so instead of asking were there any errors in your department this week she started asking was everything as safe as you wanted it for your patients this week this was accepting that things are sometimes not perfect and it also encouraged specific information from an individual's point of view. And it encouraged ownership from individuals. And apparently, uh, once she started asking that question, she said her office was full of people uh, coming in with ideas and sharing concerns. Finally, the next step is responding productively. And this, as a leader, can be uh, challenging. So when someone finally gives the feedback that you wanted and shares information, we need to be careful how we respond. Our team members aren't always gonna share things that we wanna hear and we need to first thank them. So we wanna make sure that they do it again. So if we respond with anger, we've pretty much guaranteed that they are gonna quietly not share in the future. So we wanna thank them and we wanna respond to the information with action. We can also give them constructive feedback. So psychological safety doesn't mean, you know, Sharing a personal issue that doesn't have anything to do with the work that we're doing or calling someone out uh, in a judgmental way in in a meeting, that's that's not what we're talking about. So we can sometimes give constructive feedback on more effective ways to communicate. And if the feedback that someone's sharing with us or the information they're sharing shows that they're not quite clear on what's at stake or what the goals of uh, operation is, we can take that opportunity to give them uh, feedback there as well.
1: I love all of these examples that you've provided. I think it's going to be really helpful for our listeners, because you gave such clear and thorough examples of how to address psychological safety, both in day-to-day work and in quality improvement. Thank you to our featured guest, Dr. Michael Holliday, for joining us today, and a special thank you to you, our listeners, for tuning in to Cardio Radio.
0: This concludes today's podcast. Be sure to visit Cardio.org to learn more about the Ohio Cardiovascular and Diabetes Health
1: Collaborative.